Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, The Crossroad, with a very special message called, Why Crucify Jesus? So turning your Bibles to John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The accounting department of a large insurance company was working on year-end reports when the computers went down. So an emergency call was put out to the systems analyst, and he was very busy and didn't show up until three hours later. But even so, when he appeared, the entire office burst out into a mass of cheer, and someone shouted, here comes our savior. Well, without a word, the systems analyst turned to leave. You know, panicked, the accountant manager ran after him and asked, where are you going? And the analyst looked at him, and then he said with a smile, hey, I remember what they did to the last Savior. (laughs) Today, we come to the end of our series in John 7 to 11. And then after this chapter, the drama to put Jesus to death will switch into high gear. You know, that's odd, don't you think? I mean, why would anyone now oppose Jesus? His great crime this time was that he had just raised a dead man to life. And that's the title of this sermon, Why Crucify Jesus? And I, I give you five answers. Let's start with John 11:45 to 47. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. See the problem with Jesus? It creates division. Here's what I assume happened. Jesus had stood at the tomb and called Lazarus to rise from the dead and he came out. He came out bound, and they unbound him, and he was alive. And then they walked from the tomb back to Bethany to Lazarus' house. Jesus and his friend Lazarus walking together, walking back to the house. Crowds of friends, many hundreds of them, packed into the house, amazed to see him alive. And in this crowd and amid hushed tones, Jesus had declared what he already told Martha, that the hope of Israel is not a resurrection at the end of time, but that the resurrection is already among them. He is the resurrection and the life. And with that came division. Some finally said, I I can no longer deny that this man is who he says he is. And here we are with Lazarus, a man who was but moments ago rotting in the tomb. And here he is alive and filled with joy, I believe. And some walked out right out of that meeting, walked the two miles to Jerusalem. And because they were friends of the Pharisees, told them immediately what had happened and what Jesus had said. And that was a picture of division. And with Jesus, it's going to be either devotion to him or a hate-filled opposition to him. You know, in fact, that's exactly what Jesus had said. He, he had promised from the beginning that his presence in the world would create just such a division. You know, some wonder why that division exists, but let's leave the question for a moment and just concentrate on the fact that the division exists. I know of numerous stories where parents have disowned their children after they came to Christ. You know, friendships have been split apart because of Christ. Marriages have been canceled because someone came to Christ. And everywhere the message that Jesus goes, it's always followed by controversy. Is that okay with you? Would you rather have Jesus and controversy or life without Jesus and peace? So you answer that question every day. You know, someone had said to me of someone they worked with, I was shocked to see them go to church. I mean, they never speak of Christ. I remember when I was in university, we were given a book to read. It was in an English class, and it was a mean-spirited book. It openly despised the Christian message. I remember writing a, a paper defending the real Jesus against what this book had said. 
I thought I'd receive a failing mark, but when the time came to hand back our papers, my prof said that two of us had written papers that were outstanding and we were going to read them. And to my amazement, I mean, I almost fainted straight away. She asked me to read mine. And then I couldn't believe it. She asked another, it was a young Christian woman. I knew her to be a Christian to read hers. Wow, I thought, two believers defending Jesus in a secular university. I was excited. So I read mine and I was trembling. I I can hardly remember how I did, but you know, I did it to the glory of God, however it came out. And then came the other Christian, and amazingly, she had written a paper to defend the book. I was stunned. And then I realized what it was. She wanted a good mark. And that's always the question. If Jesus creates division, would you still rather have Jesus, or are you happy doing away with him and saying, crucify him? See, why would anyone crucify Jesus? Well, he creates division. Some people don't want that. Second, his presence creates a crisis. Look again, verse 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The council that had been called would have been a special session of the meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. They were under Roman authority, although Rome itself had given this body control over what they called internal affairs. Now, that means they were responsible for religion and the justice system and the passing of laws and the governing of the nation. And they were made up of 70 members plus one. And that one was the Jewish high priest. We're going to meet him in the next verse. The Pharisees, whom we know, were the vitriolic opponents of Jesus. But the majority of the members of the Sanhedrin came from a group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees controlled and dominated the priesthood, and they were, in fact, quite liberal. You know, for instance, they denied God's sovereignty. They denied the existence of angels. In fact, they even denied there was life after death. And so they believed the only life you could get was right here on earth, something that was up to you. They seem, at least in my eyes, like men who would fit very well into our culture today. And so you can imagine the Sadducees had become the upper classes. And they were usually quite wealthy and they worked hand in hand with the Romans. In in many ways, they were traitors to Israel. Now, can you imagine the meeting they had on that day? Must have been fascinating. None of them could deny the miracles Jesus had done. Healings, feeding of 5,000, driving out demons, and now raising his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. None of them, not even the Sadducees, could deny that. It's undeniable, it was fact. You would think they might pause and have some discussion about what these events actually mean. Is God among us or not? Ah, They don't have that discussion. The idea of a Messiah is a very hot button in Israel, especially around Passover. Passover is the celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt through his chosen man. God had devastated the Egyptians, but the angel of death had passed over Israel. The parallels in the present day were obvious. Israel was again waiting for God's chosen man, the Messiah, who would do the same to the Romans as he had done to the Egyptians in the past. So here's the discussion. If because of these outstanding miracles, everyone in Israel believes in Jesus, well, then what? The Romans will sense the threat, and then, said the Sadducees, then they will come and take away our place and our nation. What do they mean? Well, on the one hand, it seems easy. The place, well, that's the temple. They'll burn the temple to the ground. And then they'll destroy Israel as a nation. Rome will never tolerate a Messiah. They'll crush him utterly, and then they'll destroy the nation. 
But there's still something missing here, and please don't miss it. Notice they call the temple our place. Well, it isn't our place, is it? It's God's place. But they don't see it that way. See, what they're really concerned about is that the the Romans would remove them from their position of power in the temple. They're going to lose power. And because of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus has now created such a crisis that seems likely. And it's a political crisis to them. That's how they think. Uh, Did you know that one of the reasons Jesus was persecuted, and the same reason why Christians are persecuted today is because people perceive that Jesus threatens their power structures. All over the world, there are anti-proselytization laws. What I mean is that all over the world, you can believe anything you want, but if you win someone to faith in Christ, you can go to prison. Some places you can be killed. You know, several years ago, the, the World Evangelical Alliance met in Geneva to discuss just that problem, and they noted that persecution usually passes through three stages. Stage one is what they call the disinformation stage. You know, disinformation begins more often than not in the media. Through printed articles and radio and television and other means, Christians are robbed of their good reputations and their right to answer the accusations made against them. In other words, Christians are slandered in a way you wouldn't slander anyone else. Then comes stage two, and stage two is the discrimination stage. Christians are relegated to second-class status. They receive poorer education, poorer health care, lower social and economic status. In other words, just to be a Christian means you can't get that good job you were looking for or the good schooling for your kids to give them the right future. Tell me if that were so. Would you still show up in church? Boy, I hope you would. And now comes stage three. This is the persecution stage. And it may begin with harassment from police and it can lead to mob riots against Christians and finally outright persecution and death. Why does it happen? And that's the key question. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience has been designed just for you. Well, we're heading to Israel in 2021, and we'd like to invite you to join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada team for this amazing trip from April 11th to the 19th 2021. Experiencing the sights, sounds, history, and the culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. This is a life-changing trip that you won't want to miss, and, and you have plenty of time to prepare. So to learn more and register, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebibletours.ca. You know, today, the list of countries that persecute Christians is a rather long list indeed. And you know what's behind this? Saul of Tarsus was persecuting believers, and Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And you remember what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Persecuting believers is persecuting Christ. So why do you persecute Christ? Because in this case, 
They knew that if every single citizen of their country had an open, honest opportunity to hear the man who raises the dead and who opens blind eyes and who feeds the poor and who forgives sins and who tells the world of the wonderful love of God, who is in fact God himself come in love to the human race, if they heard that, many would believe and many are afraid that would upset their power structures. That's why they persecute Christ today. And that's why they would crucify him all over again if he walked among us. All right. They crucified him because he creates division and because he creates a political crisis. But there's a third reason, and Jesus shows us we need someone to die for us. Look carefully at John 11, 49 to 51. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. You know, Caiaphas ruled as high priest from the years 18 to 36. He ruled for 18 years, and John says he was high priest that year, I think he means that he was high priest that fateful year. And when it came to the death of Jesus, Caiaphas' reasoning is very simple. What do you want, he says, that all of us die at the hand of the Romans or that one man die at the hand of the Romans? It's, it's either he dies or we die. Now, on one hand, that's all nonsense. We know from history that in AD 70, the Roman army came into Jerusalem and slaughtered the population and burned the temple to the ground. Jesus himself predicted that event, and he called it a tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. He compared it to Daniel's abomination that causes desolation. You know, for all of you end-time buffs, uh, you should know that, that there is in the Scripture a threefold pattern of the abomination that causes desolation. The first is when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple and killed many Jews in about 165 B.C., the second is what happened in AD 70 when the temple was burned and the Jews were again slaughtered. And the third will happen at the end of the world when Antichrist slaughters the people of God. It's that kind of carnage that Caiaphas wanted to prevent. We've got to stop this from happening. It's either him or it's us. That's what he says. And it must be said that what they did to Jesus did not protect them at all. See, God is sovereign even though the Sadducees denied it. The Roman emperor Tacitus would come and he would slaughter the people of Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, John wrote this book after the slaughter of Jerusalem and all his readers must have read what Caiaphas said and they would have shaken their heads and said, what a foolish thing he said, how wrong he turned out to be. Or was he wrong? Well, John says, no, actually he wasn't wrong. He was right. This wicked man named Caiaphas was actually prophesying in a way that he doesn't understand. Either Christ will die or we'll all have to die. You know, in the Middle Ages, the call went out to find out who was responsible for that horrible crime of, of killing Jesus. And the answer was given that the Jews were responsible. They were the Christ killers. And because of that, many Jews were horribly persecuted. You know, as a Christian, I'm ashamed of that discussion. But then, if it's not the Jews who killed Jesus, then who did? But all of that discussion radically misses the point of the entire account in the Gospels. You know, there's a very famous painting. It's entitled The Raising of the Cross. It was painted by the Dutch painter Rembrandt, 1633, and it presently hangs in the gallery in Munich, Germany. You know, at first glance, the painting seems straightforward. Christ has been nailed to a cross and is being raised up. Riding on a horse behind him appears to be Caiaphas, the high priest. 
At the foot of the cross, there seems to be a Roman soldier almost kneeling before him. There's nothing out of order until you look at the man with a hat on. It seems that he's the most active in the involvement of the crucifixion. So who is that? And why isn't that a Roman soldier? Well, in fact, that man, at first glance, seems like he doesn't belong there until, well, you look closer and you find out, well, yeah, he really does belong there because that man is, in fact, Rembrandt himself. He, he painted himself into his picture. He wanted us to know that he was responsible. He had nailed Christ to the cross. His sins had nailed him there. And so, hence, the answer to the question, who killed Jesus, must be, I did. My anger, my lust, my selfishness, my lies, my hatred, my contempt for God, all of that and more, all my sin hung over me, and that's the issue. The frightening thing is not that the Romans stand at the city threatening to pull it down. The frightening thing is that altogether righteous wrath of an incensed and angry God standing over the city. And that's a frightening thought. Would I have stood with a crowd and screamed my head off until my throat was hoarse shouting, crucify him? The answer is, you bet I would have. And I'm ashamed of that. But then it's either him or I. As much as I might want to lay the blame for the death of Jesus before the contemporary persecutors of Christ, I find myself in league with them. I am no better than anyone else. I can't point a finger of blame for the death of Christ at you or at the oppressive governments that persecute believers today. I've chosen to crucify him. It was me. It was my sins. My transgression bruised and wounded him. I'm guilty. So then Christ creates division and he creates crisis and he shows us that someone must die for sins or we will die for our own sins. Now, Jesus also shows us that he has come to create new loyalties. And that's also why he's persecuted. Look in John 11, 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's, it's not like this is a new thought. You know, in John 10, Jesus said that his sheep know his voice, and he promised that he would enter into every single sheepfold in the world, every single culture, and call out his own sheep. What an array of sheep. You know who they are? Oh, we're the persecutors of Christ. We slaughtered our Savior, but he rose from the dead and conquered death and Satan and sin and hell and rose for our benefit. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What an amazing group of loyal followers taken from the persecutors of Jesus. No wonder Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. And that brings us back to the, the final question, to the answer, why would anyone crucify Jesus? I look at John 11, 53 to 57. It's a closing passage. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? 
But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You know, that day when the Sanhedrin heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, well, they made a decision. They would engage the Roman government. They would lay false charges against Jesus. They would demand that he be crucified. And they would do it as quickly as they possibly could. They would enlist some of his own to betray him, Judas. They would enlist false witnesses. Uh, They would deliver him to Caesar and demand that he be beaten and then nailed to a cross. And they would make it known that everyone is obligated by law to tell where he is so that they might arrest him on sight. And of course, in between, there was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the fact that he stood that city on its head. And there was not one person in all of Jerusalem who didn't know of the drama that was unfolding before them. And they wondered, would he show up in Jerusalem? And that, of course, leads us to a personal question. What are you going to do with that? The Jesus who really existed showed up in Jerusalem. He marched into Jerusalem for one purpose. He knew what the high priest knew. Either we were all going to die or he was going to die. And he came to lay down his life so that anyone who believed in him might live. And I would say to you who are listening to me today, would you respond to Jesus? Would you say, thank you that you have died for me. I surrender my life into your hands. Make me one of your disciples. I, who was your enemy, would love to be made one of your friends. Thank you for what you've done on my behalf. Here's my life. Take it, it's yours. John, the cross is the heart of the Christian message, isn't it? Yes, Ben. I I don't know how often we need to say that, but we can't say it enough. Uh, Without the cross, there isn't a Christian message. There is only the cross. Everything else in the life of Jesus takes focus from the cross. And as we've seen in the passage today, you know, um, either we die or Christ dies. It's going to be one or the other. And... uh, you know, there are those that, you know, say, I mean, I just want to follow the, the moral example of Jesus. I mean, that whole uh, line in my response is, you won't be moral enough. Uh, you certainly won't be perfect as he was perfect. So, you know, either Christ will die for us or we will stand before God and give an answer for our own sins. The good news is put your trust in him for he was crucified for you. Thanks so much, John, for a wonderful series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.